Uh, we've been making our way through the book of Genesis, uh, and uh, as we go through the book of Genesis, it's been really uh, delightful to see that Moses has a strategy for how he organized the book. God led him to do this, of course, by the Spirit. But uh, Moses will reveal to us when he's moving on to a new section. And so I don't know if you've been marking these in your Bible. They're worth marking as we go along. But there are these statements that he uses right at the beginning of a new section. The statement is normally translated something like this. These are the generations of. And in chapter 11, verse 27, we come to the sixth statement, the sixth time that is mentioned, the sixth section. And it says, these are the generations of Terah. It could be translated, this is what became of Terah and his line. And what we find uh, when we start in 11, chapter 11, verse 27, is that this section covers just about four, 14 chapters it's the largest section in the book, the most exhaustive, and it's the central one, too. There are five sections before it, five sections after it in Genesis, but Moses would really want us to make much out of Terah and what becomes of him. And of course, if you're reading this text, you find out that most of this section is not about this obscure man by the name of Terah, which maybe none of us have heard of, but it's about his son, Abram who becomes Abraham. And so throughout the sermon today, I'll be referring to him mainly as Abram, except when I mess up. His name's gonna change later. I'm just gonna apologize right now. In the, the first service, I said Abraham about five or six times. Uh, I understand. Uh, I see what's written here, but I'm talking, it's the same guy, okay, same guy. And so as we get to this middle section, we'll learn more about Abram. In our sermon today, we're gonna look at the, the very beginning of the Abraham story, Abram's story, and we'll learn from Abram's faith journey. In the beginning itself, in the end of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12, which is what we're gonna cover today, um, we will learn of both Abraham's initial victory and his first failure. Um, we will see a clear demonstration of faith but then we'll also see him struggle in a, really, in a terrible way. Now, I think his victories and failures, however, anticipate moments of victories and failures in the life of anyone who would follow God. And so as we come to this text, perhaps you'll be able to relate a bit to Abraham. Have you ever experienced moments of great trust and resolve in God? Aren't you just so thankful for those moments? Like you feel like you've got a strong backbone and you, things could be messed up around you, but you just really have confidence in God. But then there are these other moments, right? Moments of doubt or fear or weakness. Perhaps you can relate to that. Perhaps even this week you've had moments where you felt on top of things, had everything under control, trust in God, resolved to follow him, but then you received that text, that email, that phone call, or you had that conversation, and you just went down to rock bottom. I think we'll all learn from Abraham that no matter what we experience at all times in life, we should put our faith and trust in God. That's what I want us to learn today. 
And we'll see that in the beginning of this story. Uh, The beginning of Abram's story is riveting. In a little over one chapter, we move along with Abram from his hometown in Babylon up to Assyria, then to the promised land, then down to Egypt. So he's always on the move in this section. I want to start by looking at Abram's family, and today I'm going to have three points in an outline that will help us just go through the narrative. The first one is just, number one, family. Okay, so chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, I want you to look at that with me. I'll read it to you where we learn about his family. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Moses describes Abram's family with major and minor characters. First, we learn about his father. His father's Terah. And what we know about Terah from other texts is that Terah was originally an idolater who served other gods. You could go, for instance, to Joshua 24, verse 2, look that up. He was originally an idolater serving pagan gods, but at time, in time, somehow, he became a believer in Abram's God. We learned that from Genesis chapter 31 and verse 53, that he became a worshiper of Yahweh. Now, Terah had three sons. They're mentioned in the text as Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran dies and leaves his son Lot in the custody of Abram. But for the purposes of Abram's story, there are three characters mentioned here in this first part that have lasting significance. Those three characters are Abram, Sarai, and Lot. Those characters are full and developing characters, and in other places in these 14 chapters, you will have whole chapters devoted to those people, Abram, Sarai, and Lot. Now, before we leave Abram's family in this little brief discussion, there are two other points I want to draw to your attention. First, near the end of this background section, we learn that Terah takes his family out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is down in Babylon, and he takes them up north to uh, a city called Haran, which is north of Palestine, north of the Promised Land, and that they end up staying there and that eventually... Um, uh, Abram's father, Terah, remains there and and dies there. But perhaps of most significance for the rest of the beginning of this story is verse 30, that little note in verse 30, where it says, now Sarai was barren, she had no child. And so Sarah's infertility is, impacts the plot of Abram's entire story. Abram's story is not going to end until God does something to overcome the infertility of Sarai. But at the beginning, this is where Abram is. He is weak. 
his wife is barren, his father is dead, and that leads us to the next part of the story where we move from his family to his fidelity. That's point two, his fidelity. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through nine. We can see Abram's immediate resolve to, and commitment to obey God in these verses. Moses narrates this important part of Abram's story, I think, around two things. In verse 1, you can see that the Lord speaks to Abram. And then in verse 7, a little bit later, it says that the Lord appears to Abram. So look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, and then there's a quote. The Lord's going to address him. Go down to verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, so all of this is arranged around God speaking to Abram and Abram responding, and then God appearing to Abram and Abraham responding again. So let's look at verses one through six, God's speech and Abram's response. Look at verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and all the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. In this first section, we come to a very significant passage. If theologians uh, care about any section of Genesis, this is one that just draws their attention. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, we have the basis of the call of Abraham and the covenant that God makes with him. This is the Abrahamic covenant. If you ever heard those big words, this is the core of that covenant that God makes with Abram. <coughs> now, in a nutshell, what you find here at the beginning of the text is that God gives Abram one command. One command. Go out. Could be translated, leave. Okay? And in verse four, Abram went, he left. In fact, both of the verbs I just mentioned, verse one and four, spring from the exact same Hebrew word, halak, which basically means, so, so God says leave and Abram left. Okay. Now after God's one command, he gives Abram six reasons or promises that should compel him to obey the one command. I love the structure of verses one through three. It, you know, in kind of layman's terms in my own mind, it's, it's like this. God says this. He says, Abram, you do one thing and I'll do six. Okay, you do this one thing and I'll help you in these six ways. Isn't that just like God, by the way? Our great God. He always gives us, he gives us far more than we could ever get back to him or expect from us. So having said that, God, what God requires of Abram in, in verse one is still difficult though. Okay, go out. And uh, the reason it's difficult, I, I think there are two reasons. I, I think this is a difficult thing for Abram. One, 
uh, he has to leave three important spheres of influence in his life to follow God's will here. If you're looking at verse one, uh, again, it says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Okay, country would be some translations of the tribe, so it's kind of starting broadly, it's getting more narrow. To your kindred, this would be your, your extended family. I want you to leave your extended family. And then he says, I want you to leave your father's house, your more immediate father family, like your father or brothers. One commentator described very well, I think, what's going on with Abram here. He said, uh, for Abram, the solace of country and family must give way to a higher allegiance. The solace of country and family must give way to a higher allegiance. And before we think that this is just an ancient text about Abram, do you remember what Jesus said about followers of him? I think of like Matthew 10. Matthew 10, Jesus makes statements like this. He says, um, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is making a significant point. If you're gonna be a follower of his, there's no other relationship that is more important to you than he is. And so here, Abraham's put in, you know, with this one command, but it's a big one. God says, Abraham, I, I want you to cut off your strongest family bond and leave your family. I think it's difficult for another reason too, and that is the end of verse one. So look down at verse one again. Uh, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay, so another reason why this is difficult is because Abram obeys even when he doesn't know where he's going. God says, in the future, I'll show you where you're gonna go, but I want you to go now. Hebrews 11, by the way, picks that up, doesn't it? Remember when we went through Hebrews? And in Hebrews 11, we find out that Abraham did not know where he was going when he went out, and he only figured it out once he got there. Again, though, I think this is a good example of, of, of one who willingly trusts God, even if he knows very little about where that trust will take him. The same is true for us as followers of Jesus Christ followers of God through Jesus Christ. We must obey God even when we don't fully know where we're going. Have you ever been in a position before where you did not know what God would have you do? What decision to make, what to do? I think as we read through this text, we're gonna find out in those moments, we just need to obey God. Get up, be in the word, pray, Obey the scriptures that we do have that are clearly there and trust, trust God to lead us through. And so Abraham's a good example in this way. But I wanna take a few moments to focus in on those actual promises. There are six of them here that God gives to Abram and we'll go quickly through this. Remember, God says, if Abram would do one thing, he would do six. Okay, so here they are. First, he says, I will make of you a great nation. What you have to remember here is that God's promises to Abram at this point are given when he's 75 years old. And he doesn't have a child. Imagine how this promise would have struck Abraham. God is not only going to give him a child or children, he is going to somehow make him the leader of an entire nation, a great nation at that. 
Somehow, out of Abram will come a large political group united by a common language and government and land. I'm sure at this point, Abram was floored. I'm gonna make of you a great nation. Abram is weak, he's without family, he's without child and without direction. He doesn't even know where he's going. God says, I'm gonna make of you a great nation. The second promise follows. He says, and I will bless you. Okay, now we can just hear that and just say, well, that's nice that God's gonna do this, but that's a significant statement as well. For what's been happening since Genesis chapter three, really, is we keep seeing the word curse, okay? From my count, in Genesis one through 11, we have the word curse five times. Five times God says, because of sin in the garden, there's a curse. Because of Canaan, or Cain's sin with his brother Abel, there's a curse. Because of the flood and the wickedness of man, there's a curse. But here five times, matching the five statements of curse in Genesis 1 through 11, God says that I'm gonna bless you. Just these few verses, did you see that as we read through verses one through three? I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. He just keeps talking about blessing in this passage. But God will not only bless him and make of him a great nation, the text says third, that God will make Abram's name great. I will make your name great, which is a deliberate contrast to the Tower of Babel story that we looked at a few weeks ago. Remember the Tower of Babel story? These builders have their own initiative, their own desires. They're gonna make a name for themselves. And how did that go for them? Not very well. And one of the things we learn is that, and I think that's insightful for us, is that for someone to have a great name, that's all up to God. Matter of fact, as I read the Bible this week and did a little study on the words great name, I realized that in the Old Testament, there are only three individuals who had a great name. One, Abram. Two, King David. Three, God himself. God's name is always great, and he will give significance or a great name to whomever he wants. But God says here, I will make your name great. And then we learn at the end of verse two that God will do that for him. He will make him, his name great, so that Abram is not only a receptacle of God's blessing, but that he will be able to transmit it to others. So that you will be a blessing. And then in verse three, we have three other promises we just go quickly through. And I think these three promises all tell us how Abraham's gonna be a blessing. They relate to that third promise. They expound on it. This is how you're gonna be a blessing. Okay, he first says that those who favor or bless Abram themselves will be blessed. So if someone comes along and they bless you, they're gonna receive blessing for that. He continues that anyone who dishonors Abraham will be cursed. The word cursed, of course, is much stronger than dishonor, and you can feel that even in English. God will impose a barrier or a ban uh, he will excise anyone from the blessing who chooses not to treat Abram with respect. They treat him as a light thing or a light person. They're gonna be excised from this blessing. And then he says at the end of verse three that uh, 
He, he finally says there that, that in Abram, all families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the final promise. In you, all families of the earth would be blessed. And it's in this final construction that we discover the ultimate goal of God's dealings and promises with Abraham. It, for simplicity, you could say it like this. You say, go out, leave, so that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Here, the ultimate goal or chief end of God in promising all these things to Abram is worldwide blessing, universal blessings on every family of the earth. This does not mean that every individual will be impacted. Some will be cursed under the curse and will not receive the blessing, but every people, family, will experience God's blessing. Now, if you just stop here and you know the rest of your Bible, you know that this last promise of the Abrahamic covenant is one that's just expanded throughout the rest of the Bible. Perhaps you don't know the Bible very well, but let me just tell you this, that that little phrase, so that in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed, I believe is ultimately fulfilled through the person and work of whom? Jesus Christ. You got it. You got it. So that years later, the apostle Peter will think of this text, and he'll quote this text when he's talking to the Jewish people, when he's, Peter is referring to the work of Jesus on behalf of the Jewish people. And the apostle Paul, we, we read Galatians 3 today. Remember Thomas stood up here and he read Galatians 3? So thousands of years later, after the promise to Abraham, this is what Paul the apostle says in verse 14. He says, so that, listen, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Men and women, it is through Jesus Christ that this promise is ultimately fulfilled. Okay. Jesus will be born out of the seed or the line of Abraham. And through him, blessings will come to all the families of the earth. We rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. But we have to keep moving, okay? And in verses four through six, Abraham, after God's command, Abraham promptly leaves. Remember, he left. With him go his nephew, Lot, and Sarah, and they take all their possessions. They go down from above the promised land, before it was the promised land. They go down into Canaan, go to a city called Shechem, and at a special place there, Abraham stops. The name of the place was called the Oak of Morah, which could be translated in Hebrew, the Oak of the Teacher. Okay, so this is some significant ancient place that we don't know about today. We don't know where it is. Now, maybe, you know, our Old Testament professor, Mark Hassler, thinks, you know, maybe, maybe he can find it. But this famous large oak tree, perhaps an evergreen oak tree, Abram stops, and we get this ominous note at the end. Okay, so he's under this tree in Shechem, and we find out that at this time, the Canaanites were there. Okay, so nice tree, but not in friendly territory. The Canaanites were the pagan, godless people from the cursed line of Canaan. Okay, and that's where we learn of God's second major action, uh, interaction with Abram, where he appears to him. So look at verse seven, verses seven through nine. Then, that oak of Morah, 
the, teacher, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Remember before God says, just go, I'll show you the land. Abram gets there and he gets this appearance from God. This is the land. So he built there an altar to the Lord and, uh, who had appeared to him, verse eight. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel in the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Okay, so at this point, the Lord makes an appearance to Abram, tells him this is a place your descendants will get. And in this pagan place then, Abram chooses to build an altar. He doesn't join with the pagan worship of the Canaanites, he's gonna worship Yahweh alone. He then moves from, uh, to a place between Bethel and Ai, and he builds an altar there, and he worships there, and he finally moves down to the Negev. The Negev is on the southern part of the promised land, and the word Negev literally means uh, dry land. It's like a desert sort of area on the southern sections of Palestine. So at this point, Abraham has come quite far. He's come from Ur of the Chaldeans. He leaves uh, to go to his father's house up in Haran by obedience to the God. To God, he then goes down into Canaan. He settles in the southern part of the Promised Land. Although it's been quite a trip, and he's covered a lot of distance, what we see so far to this point is a great act of faith. He leaves his family, leaves his father's house, and he decides to follow uh, the Lord. Okay, so uh, what happens, though, with the rest of the chapters where I really want to focus, okay? And what happens is you go from this great act or demonstration of faith where Abraham just goes out not knowing where he's going to go and he just obeys God to a horrific act of failure. He goes from these lofty heights to dastardly depths and we read of what I would call my, my third point today is we read of Abram's failure. So point one, family. Point two, fidelity. Point three, failure. Okay, look at verse 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know you are a beautiful woman in appearance. Well, he's not failing quite yet. By the way, men, that, that might be a good way to start conversation. The rest of it kind of goes bad from this point on. Verse 12, I know you're beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Stop, that that is the third time we see that exact question in the book of Genesis. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God asked Eve, what is this that you have done? 
And after Cain kills his brother Abel, God asks Cain, what is this that you have done? Now it's not God, it's an evil ruler, Pharaoh, who asks faithful, right? Faithful Abram, what is this that you have done to me? Keep reading. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Okay, in this episode of Abram's life, we move from fidelity to failure. This movement involves three characters again. This time it's Abram, Sarai, and the Pharaoh of Egypt. At the beginning of this part of the story, we come across a problem, a huge problem from them. It's repeated twice in the text that there was a famine in the area where they were, a great famine. Remember, they're down in this dry area anyway in near the Negev. There's this severe famine. It's not just a local famine or a small famine. It's a severe famine. In the ancient world, of course, famines were quite common and were devastating to people and their survival. So Abraham and his family are under great duress, and so they move down toward Egypt to survive. Okay, so they're still on the move, going down toward Egypt. Now, Abram's faith is not very mature here at all. And, uh, you know, I, I hope you understand that as you're just reading the beginning of Abram's story, we, you know, a lot of times there are these questions that we have, like, is he, a, is he truly a believer? Is he becoming a believer? Like, where is he at in his faith journey, you know? And I don't know that the Bible clearly answers that, but one thing I'd say would, would be clear, to me at least, is Abram's faith is not mature. He has not learned that you can always trust God in any situation to care for you. He's not learned that. And I think Abraham fails miserably here. In my opinion, Abraham should have never left Canaan. You say, well, why do you say that? Well, during this little narrative, we have no account of God speaking to him or appearing to him anymore. We have no more altars. Remember, there's just two altars and the other. There are no altars. But what we have is scheming and plotting and lying and covering. Perhaps you feel like you're being tested in some way. You're not experiencing a famine, but you're in a difficult situation right now. You don't know what to do, where to go. Instead of contriving, instead of scheming, instead of plotting for ways to get out, it would be so much better to trust God, to obey him, and to know that he will provide for you. But back in the story here, as they're making their way down to Egypt, Abram devises a plan to protect himself. He has no regard for his wife with this plan. He is completely self-absorbed. Although Sarah is now 65 years at this point, she is attractive, very beautiful. I'm sure this will be how Carissa looks when she's 65 years of age, very attractive. It's repeatedly mentioned in this text. It's not just his view, this is what the Egyptians think too. So Abram instructs her to tell others that she is his sister. 
Tell them you're my sister. And that's a half-truth. Abram and Sarai had the same father. Okay, I was telling this to my kids last night, and one of them's like, that's gross. Uh, it's like incestuous, isn't it, or whatever? Well, those practices were put in place like later in Leviticus, and I, I used this as a chance to go back to like the flood. Like, who do you think they married when they got out of the boat? You know, close relatives. Abram and Sarah are half-sisters. This is a half-truth, though. Half, I mean, half-brother and sister. It's a half-truth, and its purpose is to protect Abram from someone who might want to kill him and kidnap his wife. Now, about this really controversial thing here, I want to make a few statements, okay? And you can write them down. You can think about whether you agree. First, Abram sins greatly here. And he fails to perform his role as a protector to Sarah, his wife. I think there's no good way, there should be no way that we should try to soften the significance of Abram's failure here. He fails miserably. And his failure impacts the one that he is supposed to protect, his wife, Sarai. In some ways, I think he's repeating the error of Adam in the garden. Adam should have stood up and said to the serpent, you will not talk to my wife that way. And you will not talk about my God that way. Adam fails Eve, and Abram fails Sarah here significantly. Having said that, Abram might be following ancient practices for traveling nomads. Okay, so there's a little bit of historical information here that can give you a little bit of insight into the text. First, we know from archaeological evidence that the Egyptians of this time period were famous for wife abductions. So as Abram's making his way down to Egypt, no doubt he becomes aware that this is a strong possibility. The Egyptians were famous for wife abductions. But secondly, we should also know that Abram's solution might actually spring forth back from his pagan days. This is a common solution for ancient pilgrims. Okay, so there's some evidence as well that this was a secular solution that Abraham might have known from his pagan days, a way to cover himself. Yet to me, it's so sad that he quickly schemes and resorts to sinful self-preservation. I think it's also true that Abraham might have anticipated the might not have anticipated fully the consequences of his actions. Abraham doesn't even, as far as we know, doesn't even bring up the possibility with his wife Sarai that she might become the wife of a Pharaoh or a Pharaoh. Perhaps he didn't even think about it. I tend to think that he didn't because he was so self-absorbed. He's only thinking about himself. Here. Regardless, his scheming and plotting had significant consequences for Sarai. She is abducted by Pharaoh, and uh, the text says in verse 15, at the end of that text, she's taken into Pharaoh's house. And the Hebrew here, just to be transparent, is a little bit ambiguous. We don't really know exactly how far things go for Sarai here. We know she becomes the wife of the Pharaoh, perhaps a part of his harem, but we're not quite sure if this also meant 
or entailed intercourse. Saying anything more than saying she became a wife, a part of his court, is speculation. I will say, however, that though Abram fails miserably, God intervenes powerfully for her in verse 17. Just reading through the text. God afflicts Pharaoh himself and his household, the text says, with great plagues because of Sarai to protect her. The word plagues, that's a word you're going to see in the Pentateuch. It's a word you'll see all throughout the book of Exodus. Remember, years later, they're going to come back down to Israel. The children of Israel, or come back down to Egypt. The children of Israel will be there. And God will send great plagues to deliver them. In this text, he's concerned for Sarai and Abram, and he sends great plagues again to deliver. The story concludes with God's mercy to Abram. When Pharaoh allows him to leave, right? Tells him to go, he confronts him. What is this you've done? Why do you lie to me about this? Abraham's speechless, doesn't say anything, but, but Pharaoh allows him to leave. With, and he leaves with all of the gifts that had been given to him. This is one of the most powerful men in the world. Why would Pharaoh do this? My personal opinion is it's because he knows that the God of Abram is no one to mess with. So he sends him out. Here in the final part of this text, God, God rescues Abram from a threat that his own fear, doubt, and self-absorption had created. As we close, I would like to make two applications for us. First, have you experienced God's mercy like Abram this week? You deserve to be punished, but God forbeared. I would say it's likely that every person in the room has been given mercy from God this past week. Can you relate to Abram? I mean, he blew it miserably. And God was merciful to him. And so I encourage you with a few things. One, I would say, what is the goodness of God supposed to lead us to? Remember Romans 2? The goodness of God leads to repentance. Thank you, Marty. Repentance. If that's true of you this past week, if you failed and God has been merciful and he's forbeared, you know what you should do? You should repent. And you should praise God for his mercy to you. The second application I would, I would leave with you is this. We will not fail in our own crisis when we resolve to trust God alone. Focus on the promises, not on the predicament that you're going through. Focus on God not on the Egyptians or whatever your issue is. The key to overcoming fear in the midst of crisis is faith in God.
Had Abram trusted God's promises, he would have never feared being killed by any Pharaoh in Egypt. And if you and I would trust God's promises of nearness and protection for us, we would never fear any predicament or any human beings that would rise up against us. Colonial, may, may God be big to us. And may people, in this way, be small. May we put our faith in God at all times to carry us through any trial. Let's pray together. If there are any of you here today who do not know God like this, we sang the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. But I like the second line, merciful and mighty. If you do not know God in a personal way, if you do not know him as both a powerful God and merciful I would encourage you at this moment to trust in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins and rose again so that you could be accepted by God and be known by God. This text is about an ancient man, Abram, who God knew and God loved and God promised things too. God could know you in this way and love you and promise you if you would accept his son, Jesus Christ, is your savior. So I appeal to you today in the quietness of this moment, if you've never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, won't you do that today? Don't you wanna serve a God that's both powerful and merciful? To my friends, my brothers and sisters at Colonial Baptist who are going through their own sets of trials or difficulties. Might I encourage you at this moment to take your focus off of the predicament and put it on the person. Put it on God. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Please remember that we are weak, frail, like Abraham was, Please remember that we cannot help ourselves. We need you. To my brothers and sisters who are enduring trials or crises in, in different ways, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them today to put their focus on, the, on, on you. I pray that they would trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.